you would see as these people joining as very rude, very, you know, untamed, you know, <laughs> you, you'd, you, but that's actually their culture and they are communicating in the best way that they would have communicated in the most respectful way. My name is Dr. Najee Rahman. I'm an emergency medicine consultant in the NHS, as well as a senior medical educator with MPS. I've been fortunate that throughout my career, I've had the opportunity to work in a variety of roles in a range of international settings as an emergency specialist, as well as a humanitarian practitioner in clinical and managerial capacities. What has often been so critical in those experiences, and in particular their translation back to daily practice, is the role of teamwork. In today's episode, we're going to take some time to reflect on our experiences as a diverse group of health workers delivering care to diverse communities. There is a Rwandan proverb which states, people helping one another can bring an elephant into the house, epitomizing the power of teamwork in overcoming challenges. However, many of us will be familiar with the phrase, the elephant in the room, in its relation to an important issue which is obvious, but no one wishes to discuss. Tackling the challenge of our own cultural experiences and how that may impact our care approaches in the delivery of high quality and safe healthcare is one that is complex. Perhaps we can make a start in moving this proverbial elephant together. Joining me today to explore these concepts further is Dr. Gavin Banjamucho. Dr. Gavin is an emergency medicine specialist who trained in Rwanda and is currently working one of the busiest emergency departments in the UK. He is a researcher and an expert in point of care ultrasound particularly as a decision support tool in resource-limited settings. Welcome, Gavin. Thank you, Najib. Thanks again for taking time out to take a deeper conversation on some of the challenges around working in the NHS as an international medical graduate. I feel it would be really helpful to understand a bit more about the environment in which you worked in before coming to the UK. Can you describe the department and hospital you worked in? Before coming to the UK, I was working at Kigali University Teaching Hospital, which is um, popularly known locally as Sehashi Ika. This is uh, the major trauma hospital and major referral hospital in the country. They receive about 40 patients per day. Compared to the UK, where you receive about 400 patients for 24 hours, uh, at Kigali University Hospital, these are high severity patients being referred from other hospitals. So coming to uh, the major trauma center, which was uh, Seashika, most of the patients had to come from another hospital or they were brought in by the local ambulances, uh, popularly known for as SAMU, being a referral. Uh, maybe they might be a trauma or they might have come from home, but the ambulance would have triaged them as to be high acuity. So essentially, this is like having 40 critical care resuscitation cases coming in every 24 hours with, with significant injuries, significant uh, septic illness, so yes. on and so forth. Okay, that's, that's correct. So you would really have um, basically like uh, 40 resuscitations admissions per day compared to the UK where you have 400 and the people who are really sick would be around 20 or 30 very sick and the rest maybe 200 would go home the other about 100 might be observed or sent home so that's how it can compare this would um, in general drain um, the resources and uh, the human resource as well uh, present in the in the hospital 
Staffing-wise, uh, from 2018, they were, they were staffing by entirely locals. But before that, uh, the attending, that's a faculty staffing there, were, were visiting faculty from the UK, from the US, and uh, sometimes from Canada, who are training local emergency medicine uh, doctors to become emergency medicine consultants. We had uh, also other people in terms of surgeons, uh, I mean, other specialties, surgery, there's um, major specialties. Maybe there's, in general, there's lack of subspecialties. Uh, you will not get things like vascular, plastics was, there was one or two plastic surgeons, cardiology in the whole country, there are less than 10 by now, by that, that time you would have one or two cardiologists in the whole country. So there was a, a lack of subspeciality, but uh, general specialties, medicine, gynecology, surgeons, orthopedics, those were, they were present at that time. Uh, we had nurses who were locally trained. Um, now, at that time, also, there were subspecialities which started to train in nursing. Now, you mentioned a little bit about resource constraint. And, okay, so we've got some challenges in terms of uh, senior workforce specialization. Yeah. But I presume that skill mix also filter down into nursing tiers as well, right? Yeah. And, and in terms of... Uh, you know, access to treatments and investigations. Was this free at the point of care for your patients in Rwanda or was there insurance paces or, or was this out-of-pocket expenses? So what happens in Rwanda um, by, by law, what happens is if a patient comes to A&E uh, by law, they have access to 24-hour free of charge care in A&E and um, anything else after that, they would have to pay for that. That was what was the hospital and that was by, by law. But in general, what happened is, if patients were able to pay, they would have to pay 10%. And uh, the equipment and uh, medication available, which was accessible to 10% was only the medication um, that was provided in hospitals. So if you went outside the hospital and you had um, the general, which was the public insurance, you will not buy medication on 10%. But, uh, so you would have to pay 100% unless you had private insurance, which would cover also other private um, pharmacies. So in hospital, only care in hospital and medication in hospital, you had to pay 10%. But 10% for someone who had a job, that's probably affordable. But for if someone didn't have a job or they were rural-based, um, depending on farming for a living, that would be something very significant, which would not be affordable to quite a number of people. So, so that's really interesting. And I think perhaps within the UK, we, we probably don't understand or appreciate so much the complexity of healthcare financing in other settings. Um, I think a lot of our listeners who have trained and worked abroad will appreciate some of that complexity. But in general, then, from a from a perspective of health practice and health culture, how are decisions made by health professionals and a team? And additionally, how do you engage with patients and care plans within that context? Looking, reflecting that, probably this would be my opinion on what I feel, and uh, maybe a few people might disagree on that. But looking on how decisions are made uh, professionally, this was, it would be on an individual basis. So looking at how patient care is not standardized, there was no general, um, let's say guidelines. Well, when you look at the UK, how things are, it's 
trust guidelines have to be mostly referred to almost in all cases. But um, looking at how things were in Sashka, that would be depending on an individual basis on their training, their knowledge. So we'd find different care on different, on the actually similar patients, depending on who are caring for them, which would generally impact the, um, the long-term outcome of the patient, that uh, ha not having a standardized care. That mean, means if the patient at some point had to go to another hospital, they would get a little bit different uh, treatment. And also considering that uh, in Rwanda at that time, people trained in different backgrounds. There are people trained in Europe, Belgium, France, the EU, who some more are trained by Americans, some trained by South Africans, some places in West, in West Africa. So everyone had different ways of approaching a patient. And um, depending on what you are reading also, that uh, if you are reading American guidelines or you're reading South African guidelines, that was totally different. So there was a little bit different on the approach. Um, in terms of um, engaging with patient, of course, um, culturally that, that it plays in, in culture also on your training. Um, the general uh, perception is the doctor is always right. And um, most patients would accept what the doctor tells them to do. In terms of, uh, yeah, for people who, are, who had high education, maybe exposure and uh, large families, sometimes they would have to engage with a doctor or if they're getting for, if they're going for private, uh, for private treatment, they would more or less engage with a doctor. But in public sectors, it's very rare that you'd see patients uh, being included in their decision makings, what's the final outcome. And the general perception is people are generally, uh, they just go with uh, what your superior will tell you in general. So people are quite obedient. So quite hierarchical in the decision making. And despite having such a diverse group of practitioners from training backgrounds, yeah. I guess the teams are quite different in how they communicate and work together with, yes. I guess, slotting into expected roles where it may be very difficult to challenge uh, those hierarchies. That's correct. Okay, so so thanks for sharing that. Now, the reason I wanted to unpick context a little bit is because, you know, with a diverse workforce, a lot of us have different backgrounds. And, you know, clearly you were pretty senior and a skilled practitioner, but how prepared did you feel for then working in the NHS? So understanding that complexity in that background of where you came from, your seniority, what was it like then coming to work for the NHS? Uh, coming to the NHS at the beginning, I was, to be honest, I was not really prepared to come to the UNHS. If you asked me two years before I joined the NHS, I had no idea that I was coming to NHS. It was just a talk with one or two people and then um, things were not going well, how I wanted them to go. When I was in Rwanda, I felt that there was still room for me to grow. And uh, where I was, I don't think I was going to achieve my goals being there. So I tried to explore the NHS, that's how I came here. Come here, uh, basically when I was in Rwanda, I was pretty senior. Um, but joining the NHS, I found it initially to be quite different. Um, and uh, now I'm, I'm, I'm starting to see it when um, I do help uh, doctors who are doing their OSCE exams to for their MRK, OSCEs, 
a few of them are international. And now that's where I do, I'm starting to understand what was happening. So when you're practicing in limited resource, particularly in Rwanda where I practice, <laughs> you go by mostly small practice, procedure-based and knowledge-based. So you go, you read, this is how we treat, um, let's say this is how we treat a wound and the empathy, the guidelines, safety checks are not really that much included when rather than we look at the outcome, rather than how we achieved, achieved the, the process. So while treating in the UK and, um, and uh, probably in a high income country, there is uh, things like empathy. It doesn't matter your knowledge. Your knowledge is not really the most important thing is how do you approach a patient? How do you, how do your faculty I was told you have to offer tea to patients, which I never did before. So you approach patients, you had to, you know, approach them, talk to them, get history from them, um, have an empathy way while uh, not patronizing, you know, while you get used in other places, nobody's going to counteract what you're saying. Here, patient can easily challenge you. So these are skills that unfortunately I, will, I was not ready for. Managerial roles, also managerial way. Having a senior role in Rwanda and coming here, I was pretty also started on a senior, started on a senior role. There are managerial way of approaching different things, like some mental health patients. Those are things that we don't really um, get taught in a limited resource mental health approach to patients in mental health. That's that's not part of our curriculum. You deal with them on on basis of um, on our basis of your knowledge. Today, what I how I deal with them is different from what you deal with them. Um, domestic violence also these are things that you, you you tend not to be it's not part of your curriculum to, to, to cover and you tend to manage on, on a personal basis um, patients intoxicated that was something not spoken of compared to coming to London where you have quite a lot of intoxication drugs these are things that were really I was not really ready for and unfortunately coming to a senior role those are things that you have to really get involved. While though I was very comfortable with uh, procedures, it's less likely that you do procedures because you have a lot of specialities who can come and help you. So you needed to learn the emergency department safely, make sure that patients are seen on time and uh, engage with nurses while uh, nurses also here have quite um, a higher role and um, they are quite senior, so they make decisions. Unlike where I came from, where nurses really have to wait for what the doctor has to say. Here it was, uh, you're on the same kind of level basis. So those are some of the things that, of course, I've, over time I've come to learn, which I was not prepared with and I didn't have. So, so theoretically on paper, yeah. two senior emergency physicians, one trained in the UK, one trained not in the UK, but actually quite a big differentiation in the context in which you're working, but also in terms of that role, right, between technical versus non-technical skill sets and how do you start to match that? So I guess there's there's two questions that come to mind. One is, you know, the practical issues of coming to the UK from Rwanda. What was that orientation and induction like? And, you know, if you were to kind of speak to yourself again, looking back, would you advise your 
your new self <laughs> uh, something differently about getting used, you know, whether about the GMC or HR processes, you know, this is the basics of getting food and housing and stuff like that, versus actually then getting used to a system as well. So I guess those, let's go by this layer by layer. What was it like actually moving and transitioning to living in the UK, and then also transitioning and living as part of your new role? Um, moving and living in the UK, definitely that, that, that was really hard, especially I came, uh, when winter had started, I remember I had to buy a very expensive jacket. <laughs> still, I still have it. I had my home clothes that, that, uh, that was quite, um, something, you know, I just, it was very warm for me when I was in Kigali, that was the warmest coat I had, but learning in the UK during winter, that was nothing. It's just like I was very naked. So that uh, <laughs> that was the part of the difficult part. And um, I realized also uh, London is quite a big, big place. Um, while we, we we get used to um, in Rwanda, it's it's a small place, and uh, you would ask someone where where everything is, so everyone would know that's where it is. I. I found it a little bit difficult to get around. So um, it's a quite disorientating, yeah. <laughs> probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah nobody yeah. knows. You ask someone where is the market, nobody knows. Just follow Google Maps. So I had to learn how to use Google Maps. And um, and uh, yeah, moving in, of course, the good thing is London is quite uh, multicultural. So food-wise, after I got to know one, two people, they oriented me to get the, the, what I, I, I got used to. and. After some time, eventually get used to what everybody eats because this is a multicultural. You eventually, if you're going to stay here, then you have to learn. If you move, if you're moving to Rome, you have to learn how to live like the Romans. You know that's a saying that uh, is quite um, uh, people use. Um, then setting in, of course, on a personal base, you have to learn. Um, always. Uh, where you work at King's is a multicultural. There's always a new doctor. There's someone who has gone through the same struggles and they tell you things and you learn from them, you know? And um, also the uh, having the- But that but that was all informal, right? Yes. This is not formalized as part of an no. induction process. You have to kind of navigate your way around. Yes. So, so I guess perhaps if those skill sets, so of someone like yourself and maybe a few other colleagues, if you came together to form a bit of a group to support new new doctors coming in. Do you think that's kind of a solution to make the landing a little bit easier and a little bit smoother? So yes and no. So I would say, or I would start on the yes and no. Definitely yes in the general thing. But we'll, um, let's go back to how um, forming these groups would be. So looking at most doctors who join the NHS, these are people from mostly Asian and Middle East. These people know about the NHS since like they joined medical school. I had no idea that there was, uh, there was anything called the NHS till 2018, one year before I joined. That's, I, th I think when I started getting the papers, I had to read what does NHS stand for. So I had no idea what NHS is. So these people have, uh, they have everything. People have, uh, my colleagues who are on the same level had already covered MR camp. They had, uh, they had really tried new everything, things that even now I don't really know. So having a group definitely is very important, but they had to be 
brought down to also where you're coming from and what you know about the NHS, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. so they have to be able to span and maybe not make assumptions yes. on what new colleagues may or may not be aware of. So I think a lot of this is, again, I guess, linked to assumptions of people's experience and background yeah. yes. and expecta- expecting a new doctor to have already hit the ground running. When actually, yeah. from what you've described, is that appreciation of a bit of context and baseline understanding and aspirations yes. is probably important. Yeah. Definitely, uh, yeah. The way you would orient someone who's coming from India, maybe I would say, is not the same way you would orient someone who's coming from uh, an African setting. The culture is different, the understanding is different, the practice is different. Some um, some countries they just do uh, UK exams and that's it. That's the same. Yeah. They do the same. But that's not the same. That's not the same as living and working in the UK. Even if you yeah, exactly. Exams, right. So uh... so definitely you need to help people. Like the induction I got is okay. There's a computer system that's EPR. I got one hour of EPR. That's the first time I had written an electronic like patient records. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, these things and uh, it's assumed. Okay, you're coming to NHS. You'd have you assume to have read about the NHS, you're joining a job. So a few hours of induction, that was it. And then that's it. The rest I had to run as to run as, as I'm going. So so I think this is really, really helpful, Gavin. So, you know, we recognize that delivering modern healthcare is clearly heavily reliant on non-technical skills. You know, you describe this difference between your background, which was very technical focused and actually transitioned to the UK, which is, you know, modern healthcare, very non-technical skill reliant, and we appreciate that. And this includes cognitive and social abilities, such as risk perception, situational awareness, decision-making, teamwork, leadership. So if we can acknowledge that such elements are strongly influenced by language and culture, you know, are there examples where, for example, in complex cases, such as airway intubation in a critical case, where these non-technical cultural issues were markedly different between Rwanda and here? Definitely huge difference. And um, unless unless you have worked in both environments, probably you, you might not understand. So let's talk about maybe, yeah, as you said, airway or complex situations. Um, I would give an example of... Um, I had a patient who had, I was going to put a central line and the patient became unstable and um, progressing it on the monitor. I had to act fast. So I a little bit raised my voice, which was very normal for me. I mean, and um, fine, everything went well. Nothing came to harm. We recognized the harm. and But eventually I got a feedback that I was quite very rude. So, you know, to, to the approach, which I was like surprised. But looking at things and um, which some things I learned, like let's saying please, to be honest, there's no word in Rwanda that says please. If Rwandans might disagree with me, but it's not something that we do we do say as part of, um, yeah, it's, it's not, not part, part of the language. language. It's not like, really um, something that's- you don't, you don't ask, can you give me a glass of water, please? That is just give me a glass of water. That's a language. There is no please uh, behind that, you know, unless, you're speaking, uh, you're adding a, an English word or a French word. So there's a way you can phrase that to look polite, but these are things, it's the language is based and the culture is based on telling people to do things, you know, communication, um, thank you. People use thank you now, but it's, 
it's not it's not something historical or part of culture in Rwanda. No, it's There's not part of an expectation of how people go about their lives. So transposing yeah. that here, we're actually yes. please and thank you are quintessentially British. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So these are things that probably under my first language is not English. English is my fourth language. So if I do, if I didn't grow up speaking English, that would be totally seen, you know, you, you would see as these people joining as very rude, very, you know, untamed, you know, <laughs> you would, you, but that's actually their culture and they are communicating in the best way that they would have communicated in the most respective way as to another patient in their country. So in their country, they don't look rude. There's no way I'd look rude, you know, but these are things that are totally different and you learn as you, you, you do stay here for some time. So, so I guess, you, you know, you've adapted a little bit to that environment, which, you know, I guess makes sense when you're looking after patients uh, who fit that same cultural mold. But from the perspective of, of your, I guess, colleagues who are, you know, homegrown for want of a better phrase, or, you know, is there anything that they could have done to understand? So, you know, when you went through that complaint, were you understood? Was your perspective valued to say, look, you know, I this is just quite alien for me to do this? And or was there an expectation for you just to uh, start modifying your approach from 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 the start? To be honest, I don't. Uh, let's say on that particular uh, uh, case, I just was receptive. I said, yes, I'm so sorry for this. You know, I'm trying to learn. Uh, hopefully next time to be better because there was no way someone who has not had um, cultural, different cultural exposure could understand how you could not say things like, please, could I get, you know? And uh, you just say, give me, please, uh, you know, go, give me that one, you know, give me, give me this certain, give me oxygen, for example, rather than could you please give me oxygen? You know, could you please get me a mask, you know? <laughs> the, in, in general, you are saying the same thing, but you are using yes, different yes. words, you know? And uh, to be in either way, in the uh, yes. back of my mind, to be honest, it's the same, you know. But it took some time to to adjust, I guess, and, and maybe that could have been, you know, that kind of uh, insight might have been helpful. Yeah. Uh, starting off from the beginning. Yeah. So uh, during that time, I I have developed over time um, friendship with uh, quite a lot of my colleagues, and I I, I become open to them, and I tell them, you know what. I have a different culture. I'm trying to be the best I can. So let me know when I go wrong. When I say something that you don't like, let me know so that I can change because I'm trying to adapt, you know? Some, of course, they knew every time we have new people, of course, they said, always <laughs> they <laughs> we go back to zero. But with people who uh, who we are, we are used to, they sometimes, you know, once you're in a stressed environment, they wouldn't understand, you know? Once I'm in a stressed environment, of course, the please and thank you go away. You know? <laughs> and I go back to my, my normal yeah. self. <laughs> yeah. You revert back to your, uh, to your roots. So, so this is really interesting, though, Gavin, because I think there's two things I'd just like to explore a bit further based on what you just said. One is that, you know, you've invited people to check you, to have your back, because you've recognized and developed insight that we work as a team. Teams need to be able to speak up to be psychologically safe to raise our concerns. And, and you've gone out of your way to try and make sure that people recognize that you're happy to be checked. But then this goes back to this journey, right? So have there been times when people maybe have had concerns about your performance 
And have they chosen to raise this with you directly in the moment? Or have they decided to go in a more formal way and almost kind of report to you uh, rather than trying to address this in the moment? Have you had those two experiences? Um, Definitely, yes. Literally, I have had lots of complaints about me. But <laughs> unfortunately, no complaints has been laced to me, <laughs> directed to me. So, um, And um, I have learned through uh, the system. Uh, initially, what I learned about joining the UK, I think it's mostly the UK system, is um, people will almost always avoid direct confrontation with someone. I mean, it seems like... Um, giving feedback is through is not is done by probably your supervisor rather than by someone you just had you know uh, you have had uh, a confrontation with in terms of technical uh, in terms of clinical issues clinical scenarios um quite a lot of them have been sent to to my supervisor who is quite friendly to be honest is very and he has been very very helpful and he understands the culture he understands almost everything we have had we have become so 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 much so close to each other that uh, i know his family i go to visit him and his child sometimes spend time with him so we have become so close together that he tells me he guided me so there's a few cases this i can give you hundreds uh, to be honest, like a few dozen, but uh, just to choose on, let's say there's um, there's in one case scenario that um, uh, when we are doing a procedure, I was doing the procedure and someone else was doing, um, uh, was giving medication and it ended up being that the medication given on the higher side, not, nothing came harm to a patient, but, um, to do to go through that, I mean, they had to be so many people called a lot of processes, but I was not, you know, at some point someone thought I was the one and it was reported and you get reported to, to some behind. But when you eventually it turns out to be you, it doesn't get reported. So there's that kind of bias that I went through. And also the other things that you're working with colleagues and um you ended up by everybody smiling at you saying thank you and how you did great. But the next day you find that you have an email about you, about the situation. I'm like, oh, we, we were chatting. Uh, they got me coffee, you know, they, during the shift and nobody told me anything, you know. It's not, I think it's a, a, a UK culture that people don't want to get into conflicts. They don't want to give direct um direct feedback to what has happened. Unfortunately, when the, the information goes, it goes to someone else who passes it to your supervisor. So the information has become totally inaccurate. And by that time it comes back, it's one or two weeks and you can't even recall exactly the situation. And that doesn't really help, especially people who just go to the UK, um, who, get, who moved to the NHS, it doesn't really help them grow. So you are in the same situation because the case comes to you, it's diluted or it's totally different. And oh, I know I didn't do this. I didn't, mean, I, did, I never meant this. And it's, you are being given by, because it's been reported, it goes through a committee that sends to your supervisor, supervisor hears it differently. It's, you know, you end up getting told the wrong information for the wrong thing. While these things who are not really, most of these things, patients didn't come to harm, you know, it's not a serious, if patient came to harm, definitely that should be reported. But these are things that could have sorted there and there, 
there and then and someone is smiling at you, telling you how great you are. You're working together one, two, three days, they're getting coffee. But after two weeks, you're like, oh, we need you by your supervisor. What did you do on this day? You know? So this is this is really interesting. You know, that there's so much to unpack from that narrative. I guess one it shows how important it is to have a supportive mentor and supervisor. And I guess not all of us have that experience. You know, we've had ranges of supervisors and mentors. And if someone doesn't get that context, then that itself would be a barrier. I mean, we recognize already when we look at GMC data that if you are from an ethnic minority, you have uh, an increase in referrals to the GMC. And if you're if you're an international medical graduate compared to the local homegrown graduate, you know, it's almost three times as much, I think, the referral rates to the GMC by your own employer. So, so what you've described is very real in terms of this kind of reporting culture. But what's interesting here is that there seems to be an element where people really struggle to speak in the moment and try to clarify assumptions and clarify misunderstandings there and then. So it ends up becoming a more formalized process. And then also, you know, as you said, it really impacts your own personal professional development because the context is sometimes lost when it's been filtered through these different referral tiers. So what does that do for you, you know, for you in terms of building trust with your team? I mean, I presume it's been far more difficult to then build that collegiality, right? Yeah, Eventually, um, it downgrades your morale, you know, you, you, your participation as in a group, you being part of a group, and your development as well. So eventually it does that. But the good thing is where you work at King's is quite multicultural. And some do people, we do have very senior consultants who have been there who do understand these things. And some of our colleagues also do understand these things. And they do know that this happens. And uh, they have started speaking it openly, you know. Uh, they have started talking about this bias. And um, unfortunately, sometimes you just see, uh, there's a colleague, to be honest, like uh, who has gone through a lot of trouble. For me, coming from a background and African settings, I do really, I understand him fine. I do, when he always got in trouble, he talked to me, I talked through him. I could understand him though. I'm like, you know what, you have to learn. You came to UK. If you want to be here, you have to learn the UK way. You know that, that's that's the easiest way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's something yeah. there's something about adapting yeah. and understanding local culture and context. But there's also, I guess, a challenge for us, um, you know, who are established in this. Is how do we make that translation and transformation easier for colleagues coming from diverse backgrounds? Because again, we are serving diverse patient communities, and so so I'm sure making that transition to the UK practice, if we could accelerate that without increasing the burden of harm uh, to well-being and resilience, I think that surely is not a bad thing, right? Yeah. If we could have made that transition easier. Definitely, definitely. Um, they need to be a way to tackle and uh, help these people with that transitioning. Considering that most of these people, um, most of the people who joined the UK and uh, what they do they mean really well. Yeah, no one comes here to do a bad job, right? So. Yeah, no, nobody comes to do a bad job. And uh, they are really helping the system as well. They are needed. It's not that they are burdened to the system. These are people who are contributing to, you know, the care of uh, the UK and everyone. But having them, um, they need to be a pathway in terms of them being understood 
And unfortunately, that's in some cases, that's not the case. You know, there's been a lot of campaigns. Uh, there's been a lot of, um, uh, you know, like uh, groups going out there, media emails about, you know, these biases, but I, I don't think, I don't see it really improving at, at um, there is no- Hasn't filtered down yet onto the front line. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, and uh, unfortunately it's not, sometimes you might see it, sometimes it's, um, these things are done by uh, white people towards black people. It's not the case. Sometimes it's black British and, um, or black people who moved to the UK doing the same thing. And, uh, you know, they come here and uh, they totally don't understand, you know, other people. So it's not, it's not about color. It's about- It's about culture. Yeah. It's about culture and attitude. Yeah, it's, it's and, a, yeah and exactly. How we identify ourselves. Yeah. It's not, yeah, it's not like uh, it's a white man to, no, it's even people who are black British do that, similarly to people who are moving here. So actually that that links when, you know, we talk about culture, then actually that also links a little bit about power and actually, power influence and how does those roles play out in the mm. workplace. Um, so, so one thing that, that I just wanted to touch upon uh, as we start to wrap up is, is about global health, you know? So, you know, one of the things I found in my experiences, as I said in the introduction, is working in diverse environments and it's really helped to advance my own technical and non-technical skills and, you know, ideas around resilience and well-being. And you, you come across as someone who has really had a very reflective journey in the last few years. And I've also been exposed to lots of other diverse colleagues when working in Rwanda with visiting colleagues from the US and Canada and other countries. So how do you feel experiences working in a range of global health settings? How do you feel that's actually acknowledged and valued locally when dealing with diverse communities? And, and are there missed opportunities for strengthening our work here in the UK, You know, using that global health lens? Definitely working in different, um different uh, backgrounds definitely is, is I think is the best decision I ever took because uh, uh, looking at uh, the global health perspective is you tend to understand things me uh, meeting people and also treating patients you know after being in different um, in different settings and coming to the UK you tend to find that even dealing with patients who are from different backgrounds you see London people are different from different backgrounds you find that you're more uh, comfortable with them, different, you know, because you tend to understand them. Uh, talking about, you go to, there are people who come from, um, who have, whose culture is based on religion, you know, and uh, other people do. But once you work in different environments, you tend to respect them and you tend to understand them. Actually, you know, if someone says this is what is going to happen, you tend to respect that because you understand, you understand from where you came from, from where you passed through, and you tend to deal with these patients, you understand them. Let's say if you trying to refer to this, you you know, you make a- You have some commonality with those yeah, journeys. Exactly. And I guess you have a more broader view in terms of diversity yeah. and inclusion and, yeah. and checking one's biases, I guess. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Coming to other question about the UK, uh, I do find that people in the UK don't explore to go outside and understand, you know, you might find someone who went to Tanzania in a rural hospital somewhere, but it's not really integrating with the community and spending, you know, some good time. It's, it's just a controlled kind of environment. Mm -hmm. And I do think they do miss on the global opportunity of 
correctly understand it. You, uh, UK as a country is a country that wants to um, uh, deal with a lot of donations to poorer countries. And I think they would understand it more if they explored more about, you know, this is a missed opportunity that's out there. And they would um, integrate much easier and also, you know, do whatever they want to do much easier if there was this kind of global understanding and intercultural integrity more. Yeah, no, thank you. So Gavin, just before we finish, now I know something about you uh, and I know that you relish new experiences, whether it be skydiving or indeed diving with great white sharks. Um, so I'm wondering if any of those other experiences outside the healthcare setting have had a meaningful impact on shaping your perspectives and how we adjust to this environment that we work in. Yeah, definitely. I I I, I do say yeah. I'm, I'm I'm a clinician, but outside I have an outside life, and I do like spending time with uh, different people from different backgrounds. I just spend uh, some time with a friend in Pakistan, for whose back background is Pakistan, and it quite taught me a lot of things. So I do think um, meeting different people outside work, it's really satisfying, you know, knowing that there is, you know, it's not about the thousand hills in Kigali and the gorillas, you know, there's other things that exist out there and they're really satisfying. And you do find that people are happy in their own way, you know, you think, okay, Rwanda is quite a very nice, beautiful country, but you do find, you know, people are so happy in their own different ways and in their own religion, you know, you find that, yeah, I have my friend who is, Quite, uh, my close friend is Muslim, and when he goes pray, sometimes you know I'm just like, okay, fine. We we were out, and then he's I'm going to pray. Yeah, I I stay with your children. You just go and pray. You know, these are satisfying things, and you tend to understand. So outside work, I mean, getting to know different cultures to me is very satisfying, and it has really helped me uh, grow so much and understand. You know, and get that happiness from doing that. Fantastic, Evan. Really good way to, to conclude. So, so I think, you know, that's been a really interesting journey, Gavin, and, and thank you for spending the time to talk about not only the background of your experiences in Rwanda and how that shaped a little bit of who you were then, but also the challenges in transitioning to a very different healthcare environment. Uh, and from what sounds, you know, at times maybe a bit of a rough landing, but perhaps that's something that many people experience and, and talking through some of the ways uh, that cultural adaptation might have been made a bit easier, you know, when looking about feedback, when looking about, you know, team dynamics and communications. I really valued the way you talked about the importance of being open to check one's own biases, but also to reach out and provide opportunities for learning for others. Um, so thank you, Gavin, uh, for this. Yeah, thank you for your time, Najim. Thank you. There was a lot to reflect upon in today's episode when considering the challenges of working in the NHS as doctors who have trained overseas. It's helpful to frame our thoughts in terms of the factors that impact our performance when it comes to transitioning to working in a new healthcare system. These factors can be experienced at interpersonal, organisational or structural levels. As has been highlighted in today's podcast, as well as in literature and reports published on the issue, certain factors, such as avoiding difficult conversations, isolated or segregated working, or a blame rather than learning culture, can all increase the risk of disproportionate complaints and bias, whereas neutralising or protective factors in improving the transition of colleagues to maintain safe care include things like 
honest and direct feedback, role and team integration, cohesive and accessible leadership, and a wider strategy for inclusion. If you're a member of Medical Protection and you want to know more about today's topic, we strongly encourage you to check out our IMG Hub. Here you'll find more information and training that is specifically made for our UK IMG members. Links for these can be found in the podcast description. And with that, we reach the end of today's podcast episode, Moving the Elephant into the Room. If you're new to podcasts, maybe listening for the first time, make sure you subscribe to the channel to make listening in the future easier. You can access this podcast from all the major apps, including Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. For more information about medical protection, or if you're already a member and would like a certificate for listening today, please look for the details in the description. I've been your host, Dr. Najib Rahman. Thanks for listening.